Detective Trap contains descriptions of violence and sexual content and is not suitable for everyone. Please be advised. In April 2014, Anaheim Police Detective Julissa Trapp took one of her partners, J.D. Duran, and headed 13 miles north to Brea. She goes, we're going to go to the landfill and dig it out. I said, yeah, I'm all about the big dig. I mean, kind of, you have me at hello type of thing. The Olinda landfill is a fake mountain that grows by 7,000 tons a day at Orange County's northern tip just before it turns into Los Angeles County. You drive up there winding around, coming around a few times, like switchbacks, and you get up there and you see this large expanse of land. I mean, it is just huge. It's the end point of much of the trash generated by Orange County's three million people, a marvel of engineering and efficiency in the quest to return inconceivable volumes of solid waste as near as possible to their constituent molecules. The detective stepped onto the dirt of the 565-acre site, eye-level with the clouds. They stood on a football field-sized plateau of active dumping. This is called a cell. It was built atop countless other densely packed garbage cells decades deep. Somewhere in the mountain, the detectives believed, lay the remains of four women. What is going to be the feasibility of trying to dig to find these girls. J.D. and I were clueless. We, we had no idea the task it was going to be. Like, we were just so gung-ho. Yes, we're going to dig. Like, how could we not? Like, yes, we're 100%. We're in. They knew when the four women had disappeared. This allowed the landfill officials to estimate where the bodies might be. But I was like, this was doable. The detectives watched as the big trucks heaved up the mountain and backed onto the cell to unload cargoes of already compressed trash. They watched as big dozers shoved it onto a slope, as vehicles crisscrossed the piles on steel-spiked 8,000-pound wheels built to crush and pulverize. This is just large, huge caterpillar things that you would probably break your neck if you fell off the top of one. These things are huge, just monstrous. And you see how small you are compared to this large mound. And like, okay, I guess we're going to have to do this. And so that's when uh, you realize, okay, it's, yeah, it's not going to be easy. From the Los Angeles Times and Wondery, I'm Christopher Gofford. This is Detective Trap. This is Episode 5, Secret Graves. There was considerable outrage in the spring of 2014 after Anaheim police arrested Stephen Gordon and his friend Frank Cano for the murders of four women. How had it been allowed to happen? Both men were transient sex offenders with court-ordered ankle monitors designed to notify agents of their whereabouts minute by minute. The men were forbidden from associating with each other 
And yet nobody had bothered to compare their tracks, which showed they had cruised the prostitution corridors of Santa Ana and Anaheim together regularly for months, even as women kept vanishing. But whether parole and probation agents had botched their jobs was not Detective Julissa Trapp's concern in April 2014. During her marathon interrogation of Gordon, he had confessed to abducting and killing not just the four women she knew about, but of another she had not even been aware of. There's a black girl. There's a black girl? He said that he had picked her up on Beach Boulevard and strangled her and thrown her in the trash. He claimed not to remember her name and had only a vague description of her. She was in her 20s, built like a twig, real small, a toothpick. Did she say where she was from? She said she was from Compton, but she told me that she works the street and she doesn't have a pimp and she's not with any other girls. And I never saw anything in the paper, so... Trapp thought Gordon had been telling the truth. Based on his account, Trapp had narrowed the nameless woman's disappearance to February. That meant that as Trapp and Detective Duran stood atop the Olinda landfill in mid-April 2014, there were already two or three months of trash on top of her. And she covered two cells that were kind of overlapping based on the dates when they started and they finished the landfills. The other three women had disappeared the previous October and November. That meant they were half a year down. Trapp was eager to find the bodies or what was left of them. The evidentiary value was just part of it. She wanted to return the bodies to their mothers, if it was at all possible. Yeah, I'm looking at her and I'm like, oh, I don't want to be the one that says we can't, you know, we can't. Not that I'm the one that has the final say, but I don't want to be one of her partners saying, hey, Julie, hold up your balloon so I can pop it. You know, I'm like, she's looking at me like, what do you think? I was like, see, we could give it a go, but man. Trapp is a religious woman, and she wondered what the women might have witnessed leaving creation, how they might have watched the progress of their bodies through the machinery of disposal and the final degradation of anonymous burial in the megatonnage of this relentlessly rising garbage mountain. Landfill supervisors said the four bodies were probably somewhere within a three-acre range in a northwest section of the site, 18 to 25 feet deep. You know, it didn't take very long before. We started getting statistics about the the possibility of even finding just a little bone. I remember looking at him and just shaking my head and saying, there's no way. There's, there's no way. And immediately, almost instantly, in my head thinking, how am I going to tell these mothers that we can't do this? The FBI had dug in other landfills except in cases where the body dump had been so recent that the body was still exposed or nearly so, they'd come up empty. To dig up a landfill like that, they're like batting zero percent. It turned out some of the trucks dumped at a second massive landfill about 60 miles northwest of this one in Silmar, so they couldn't even be positive the missing women were here. The search the Brea site would be an estimated $12 million dollars, a tenth of the police department's annual budget. The search the other site would cost at least that much. In the end, the department decided not to dig. Trapp would have to tell the mothers of Kiana Jackson, Josephine Vargas, and Martha Anaya that their daughters' bodies would likely never be found. 
She had pictures of the victim's faces on a corkboard by her cubicle at the Anaheim PD, and among them was a dark silhouette where the unknown victim's face should have been above the date she supposedly died, February 14, 2014. Trapp didn't know her name or if she had a family. She had no record of her existence or any trace of its sudden, violent deletion. Between other cases, she worked to identify her through 2014 and 2015 and into 2016. She was hoping to give her a name before Stephen Gordon went to trial late that year. It wasn't possible. Gordon was charged with four rapes and murders, though only one body had been found. As lead detective, Trapp would sit at the prosecution table next to Assistant District Attorney Larry Yellen in Superior Court in Santa Ana. They dealt directly with Gordon, who had fired the public defender's office and made good on his pledge to serve as his own lawyer. It was not clear how much he would contest his guilt. It's possible he had not even made up his own mind about that. He was so erratic that nobody knew what would happen. In November 2016, two weeks before opening statements would begin, Gordon made an oral motion in court to have his confession suppressed. Someone had told him cops had violated his rights. Trapp had read Gordon his Miranda rights carefully and methodically, and he had waived them and talked for 13 and a half hours. But Gordon was now arguing she should have re-Mirandized him around 50 minutes into the interview, when he told her he couldn't talk with her and would be acting as his own lawyer. Considering he claimed to want the death penalty, it wasn't clear why he wanted the confession suppressed. Trapp thought it was his way of asserting himself, a game. In his duel with Trapp and the system she represented, it gave him some kind of pleasure or sense of power. There was evidence connecting Stephen Gordon to the other killings, his DNA, his texts, ankle monitor tracks, but only his confession linked him to the murder of Martha Anaya. I was concerned that, yes, he would be found guilty of DeRay and Kiana and Josephine, but that there wouldn't be enough evidence for the jury to find him guilty of Martha. And I didn't want that for Martha's mother. And it's the anniversary of Martha's death, November 12th. And uh, I remember walking into a cathedral and I remember thinking, please, dear Lord, do not let us lose this, this statement. I, I need your help. I, we can't afford to lose the statement for Martha because um, I don't know how I'm going to prove her death. I have no body. Judge Patrick Donahue agreed with Gordon. He decided jurors wouldn't hear the confession. I get a call from Larry and uh, while well, I'm still gone and he ends up telling me that the judge had thrown it out. And I remember just feeling a huge sense of like failure and responsibility to her. Like, I, f I failed you. I'm so sorry. And I remember coming back to court after that. And uh, Stephen liked to have uh, meetings with me during his trial. And so I'd go back, and I, uh, he wants to talk to me. And I knew exactly why he wanted to talk to me. And he, uh, he's asked me, are you mad? Because he had won and I had lost. And I remember telling him, I said, you know what, Stephen? No, 
you know, I'm not mad at all, which was a lie. But and he like kind of looked at me and I said, you know what, Stephen, I you said a lot of things to me in those 13 hours. And uh, I don't think anybody should have to hear what you said to me. And so I said, you actually did me a favor. I said, now those mothers don't have to hear all the details of what happened to their daughters. It's possible that encounter played some role in what Stephen Gordon did next. He made a surprising offer. He would give another interview, a sanitized or filtered confession, in which he'd admit to the murders of the four women, but he would not admit to sexually assaulting them. In exchange, he wanted all the rape charges dropped. Maybe he had reconciled himself to prison, even to spending the rest of his life on death row, but knew the special hatred other inmates harbored for sex criminals. He'd been there before. Maybe he believed this mattered to his survival. Whatever his motive, it was a welcome deal to the prosecutor. Yellen agreed to his terms. A fresh confession, rape charges dropped, and still enough to seek the death penalty. And so, in this circus of a trial, I find myself on the evening before trial's supposed to start, taking yet another statement from Stephen. This time, Yellen sat in. In this version, Gordon minimized his role in the sexual violence. At one point, as Gordon was recounting his grotesque story, Yellen apparently had trouble keeping a look of skepticism off his face. Gordon picked up on it and appeared to read it as a kind of judgment. He hated the judgment of others. Almost instantly, he became hostile, harder to question. Never bring another person into your interview room. That is, I stand behind that. The trial got underway, with Gordon chained to the floor beneath the defense table. Gordon was an unpredictable defendant, angry and erratic, and bailiffs asked Trapp if she would consider leaving her service Glock outside the courtroom. His hands were free, and he might attack. But she was not about to give up her gun. In his opening statement, Yellen warned jurors that the evidence ahead would be beyond offensive. These four girls, four young women up here, they are seeing here, the case from our standpoint, from the people, the state of California, will begin and will end with them. They were as young as 20 and as, as old as, about 34, and all four girls at different times uh, in, in the last year of their life, which is what this case is about, were working as prostitutes. It's not really about what got them there. It's not. Um, bad choices, bad boys, bad drugs. It, it, they were there. And, and, that's, and that's the walk of life that they ended up in. And it's a walk of life that not only would you not want for anybody, but it's a walk of life that is a high-risk walk of life, high-risk for drug problems, for disease, for getting beat up. And tragically, in our case, the highest risk for the loss of life. Stephen Gordon was escorted in and out of the courtroom by bailiffs and sat with a court-appointed investigator at the defense table. Gordon wore thick glasses and slicked back hair. 
My name is Stephen Gordon, and I am representing myself in this case. One of your fellow jurors, who was not selected to sit on this juror, stated I was stupid and arrogant for defending myself. Well, I disagree wholeheartedly. You've heard the expression, trying to right the wrong. Well, that's what I'm trying to accomplish. And only cowards hide behind their attorneys. There were basically two Stephen Gordons on display at his murder trial, switching places hour by hour and at times doing battle with each other. The first was Stephen Gordon, the lawyer, whose less than coherent defense was that he wasn't as bad as his co-defendant, Frank Cano. Gordon alternately referred to Cano as my friend and that little bastard. He insisted Cano was responsible for bite marks on Estep's body and that Cano had stomped on her neck. You heard from the prosecutor, Mr. Yellen, in his opening statement, <clears throat> his opening statement referred to myself and Frank Cano's as predators. I would agree with that statement partially. I want you to look at this picture on this screen. And in the lower right-hand corner is my friend Frank. Now, in no way am I a saint, but I have a conscience. He does not. He's a predator, and I'm going to prove it to you. One way he apparently hoped to do this was by putting Kano on the witness stand, but it was a predictable non-starter. Kano was awaiting his own trial, and when Bayliss led him into the courtroom in his jail scrubs, he took the stand just long enough to invoke the fifth. It left Gordon irate. The second Stephen Gordon was the scourge of the system that had allowed the killings to happen. He wanted to expose the ineptitude of the parole and probation departments. He argued that if they'd just watched him properly, if they hadn't let him associate with another known sex offender, the victims would be alive. When Gordon put parole and probation officers on the stand, he asked them why they hadn't bothered to compare his ankle monitor tracks with Kano's, which would have shown the men had been associating. The answers? It hadn't occurred to them, or they hadn't seen the need. But Gordon, the scourge of the system, clashed with Gordon, the legal strategist. He wanted jurors to know why he was under incompetent government supervision to begin with, including his history as a sex offender, but the suppressed confession limited what he could ask witnesses. And it gets him so frustrated that he turns to Judge Donahue and he's like, Your Honor, I moved to play the 13-hour interview. So the confession he had successfully fought to suppress would come in after all. I remember seeing the look on the juror's face because they're like, there's another interview and it's 13 hours. Like, and what's in that interview? Trap warned the mothers about what they were about to hear, that they might want to skip it. But most of them stayed. They were told they would be removed from the court if there were emotional outbursts. From her place on the witness stand, Trap faced the mothers as the interview was played. She could see them crying silently as they absorbed the terrible details about their daughter's final hours. She had given the mother's rosary beads she had had blessed at the Basilica of Our Lady of Guadalupe in Mexico City. Some of the mothers were curling them tightly around their hands now. Trap herself fought to remain stoic. Gordon was watching her, and she didn't want to give him the satisfaction of knowing any of it affected her. During breaks, Trap kept company with the mothers. 
Some asked her if she knew what it was like to lose a child. She told them she had lost hers before they were born. She tried to ease the torment of Kathy Menzies, Kiana Jackson's mother, who couldn't quite believe she was dead. Yes, Gordon said he'd killed her, but he was a liar and a con man. And how could they really know he hadn't sold her to sex traffickers who were holding her somewhere? Trapp went to see Gordon in his holding cell. She asked him to specify where he had abducted Kiana Jackson on Harbor Boulevard. With a pencil, he drew a map on lined yellow paper and handed it through the cell bars. Trapp and Bruce Lynn took the mother to the spot. Every piece of it, every horrible thing, known and unknown, and a lot is unknown, that happened to those young women, is by Gordon and Connor. They didn't bring it on themselves, those girls, those women. The probation department didn't do it. Parole department didn't do it. His ex-wife didn't do it. Man in the Moon didn't do it. He did it. In his closing argument, the prosecutor dismissed Gordon's focus on his parole and probation agents as white noise. We have the killing machines. The intentional killing machines of Gordon and Connor. Gordon downplayed the masses of evidence against him, from the GPS tracks to the DNA evidence to the incriminating texts, and seemed to relish the idea that he wouldn't be on trial if he hadn't decided to cooperate. Take away my interviews with Detective Trapp and me admitting my responsibility. This case, in my opinion, is beyond weak. Beyond weak. Now, our intentions on these nights was beyond evil. No doubt about it. To no one's surprise, Gordon was found guilty. He asked jurors for the death penalty, and they obliged. Before he was sentenced, the mothers got to speak. Mi nombre es Arlinda Salcedo. My name is Arlinda Salcedo. Buenos dias. Good morning. Um, soy mamá de Marta Anaya. I am Martha Anaya's mother. She's now left two children that were her responsibility alone. Que cada día que me preguntan por su mamá, Every day when they ask me about their mother, I just tell them that her, their mother is another star in the sky. Priscilla Vargas, and a big, big thank you to Detective Trapp and everyone who was involved in this case. I thank you for bringing justice to my daughter and for you. You took my daughter away, my firstborn. She had a baby. That little girl's going to be brought up without her mother. My name is Kathy Menzies, and I'm the mother of Keon Jackson. I talked to her just days before her death. If I had known that, I would have said, I love you, instead of just saying, talk to you later. I will never see my daughter, and she will never see her family. My name is Jody Estep here. I watched my child come into this world. He took the light right out of my life. The judge sentenced him to death, and it was over. 
Afterward, Trapp visited Gordon in his cell. She told him she thought death was the right sentence and that she expected to be there when the state of California killed him. But the verdict didn't bring her any joy. There had been no fathers standing before the judge to speak of their loss, only the mothers, and she kept thinking about how they'd be left to mourn without bodies. More than once after the trial, Trapp drove up to see Gordon. She was trying to find out if he had done other killings and trying to learn more about Kano. More than five years after his arrest, Kano still hasn't gone to trial. Spending time with Gordon made Trapp rethink one of her hard-won rules, go in alone. She told me, I feel like every time I'm alone with him, he sucks a little of my soul. You're diving into a darkness, and the quicker you get out, the better. So when she went to visit him in January of this year, she brought the homicide supervisor, Sergeant Jeff Mundy. The guard opened the door. Gordon saw her and smiled and began talking immediately about how he got his confession tossed. He's very proud of that moment. And uh, he, he turns to Sergeant Mundy uh, when we saw him in San Quentin and he's like, has she told you about how I beat her in court and got her interview thrown out? And it's, uh, it's something that he's very proud of and likes to gloat. And I think he, he likes seeing my reaction. How do you react when he says that? <sighs> he knows it bothers me, of course. After visiting him at San Quentin, she found herself dreaming of the courtroom holding cell where he was kept during the trial. He reaches through the cell bars to shake her hand, just like he did after the sentencing. She puts out her hand. He pulls her toward him, and he has a knife. She feels wetness spilling from her throat, and she wakes up. This job isn't easy. It weighs on you very heavily. We really do see and are exposed to things that are very dark and are very sometimes evil at their core. And uh, it can weigh on you and it definitely ages you. And it definitely affects your life. You almost need to have something that is driving you to continue to do it. And uh, I, I firmly believe that this is where I'm supposed to be. You know, my maker wanted me here. And it took me a long time to realize that. Is there a reason why I couldn't have kids? I think it's because I'm meant to do this. And there is definitely nothing that has been more satisfying in my life than to be at least be able to tell a mother, I can't bring your daughter back, but the person who, who did it isn't going to be able to hurt somebody else. In late 2017, a year after Gordon's trial, doctors found a troubling uterine mass inside Detective Julissa Trapp and she had a hysterectomy. She told me, there's a finality to that. The dream is gone. She decided to throw away things she'd been collecting her whole life with the idea that she would one day share them with her kids. In her garage, there were two enormous bins with old school report cards, notes, essays, book reports, track shoes, and trophies. She kept enough to fit inside a banker's box. Among the belongings, she found a grade school report in which she promised herself that she would one day climb Mount Kilimanjaro. 
Her husband was game. And so, a woman who had been camping exactly once announced to co-workers that she was going to climb Africa's tallest peak. And some people forgot who she was and made the mistake of wagering against her. Oh my God, we're so close. Okay, go, let me do something. Okay, Between the porters and guides and other climbers, there were about 40 people in her group, and she was the only woman. Six, seven, ten, fourteen-hour days of climbing. Every day she watched the helicopters cross overhead to rescue the weak and the unlucky, and she wondered, will that be me tomorrow? Her lungs were scorched, and one of her toenails fell off. On the sixth day, they stood on the summit, in a place the Maasai call the House of God. On a recent day, she went to the Black Palm Tattoo Shop in Orange and had the artist ink Mount Kilimanjaro on her upper ribcage. The tattoo joined eleven others scattered around her body, most of them hidden under her clothes. There's a Mickey Mouse tattoo on her leg that she got in her teens and plans to have removed because it evokes bad memories of the boyfriend she escaped. The swallows under her collarbone represent the children she conceived but did not bring to term, whose soul she hopes to meet when she dies. But most of the tattoos she refuses to talk about, not to her friends, not to her husband, and certainly not to reporters. She won't discuss the mirrored white staffs on her left wrist or the series of mysterious numbers on her upper right arm, which look like latitude and longitude marks. I know you're fascinated about all these crazy tattoos that I have. None of them make sense. No. (laughs) But they are. They're all a story. They're all a scar. They're not. They're a scar. They're a scar. There is one circumstance in which she might actually tell those stories. If you can get a confession, you would would tell the story, right? (sighs) Yes, I might. If it meant the difference between a killer walking and a killer going to prison. Oh, absolutely. And he pointed to your arm and said, I need to know. I mean, yes. And you know me, I wouldn't lie. There's one more part to this story. The unknown victim, Jane Doe number 5. The young black woman Gordon claimed he abducted from Beach Boulevard on Valentine's Day 2014. Where her face should have been among the photos of the other victims, there was just a silhouette. Nobody even knew she was dead. Trap was certain that somebody somewhere must be missing her. The people always ask me why I have pictures of my victims up on a wall. And uh, it's it's a reminder. When I when I come in for work, it's they're the first people I see before I sit down in my cubicle and when I leave they're the last ones I see. And so it's hard to ignore a big black silhouette that's staring at you. And it's a constant reminder of your job's not done. And so I knew that at that point, I, it, was, it was just me. My partners had moved on to other cases, rightfully so. They have their own cases to solve. And uh, it was just something that needed to be done. And I wasn't going to stop until it was finished. It's incomplete. She had combed through missing persons reports in expanding circles. She had searched city databases, county databases, state and national databases, she had long lists of missing young women who fit Jane Doe number five's general description and had searched methodically for any sign that they were alive after mid-February 2014. A social media post, a call to family, an arrest, an appearance on sex trade advertising sites. 
She had flyers distributed around prostitution hubs in Las Vegas, Texas, Oklahoma, San Diego, Oakland. Nothing. She clenched her teeth when people called it the dead hooker case. Some asked why she was devoting so much time and effort to a case that would likely never be solved, much less prosecuted. According to the water cooler talk, it was a hopeless effort. All she could think to say was, you don't understand. She won Detective of the Year for a third time, this time for her work on the Gordon Cano case. Her bosses asked if she'd consider promoting to sergeant. As she approached her third decade with a badge, wasn't it time to move up? She liked the idea of a pay hike, but it would mean leaving homicide, rotating back to patrol, packing up the second-floor desk she had fought so long to sit at. It would mean giving up Jane Doe number 5. Who else would pursue it with such fury? She told the bosses no. She wasn't ready. Her husband noticed the case seemed to have taken hold of her with an intensity bordering on obsession. It was incomplete. And she's not somebody that would ever be acceptable to, to have something unfinished. Not acceptable. Every morning she pulled out the list and went down it again. She called families and studied jail logs and crossed off names. All through 2014, and 2015, and 2016, and into 2017, there was one name she could not eliminate. The name was Sable Pickett. She had been 19 when she vanished in February 2014. A bail bondsman had called in the tip. She had been arrested for prostitution in Los Angeles early that month, bonded out, and vanished. Trapp studied the photo attached to Pickett's arrest warrant. She was black, five foot three, just 103 pounds. She had pigtails. She looked like a kid. She fit the description Gordon gave. But Trapp was trying to prove a negative that Pickett no longer existed. She hoped she was mistaken. But the young woman didn't show up in any jail or arrest logs. She had posted nothing on social media. She was just gone. It was two separate things. It was, who is Jane Doe? And then I was trying to prove that Sable was alive. And so it was, it was two different searches. Whenever I would sit down at my desk and I'm like, okay, I'm going to work on my girl. Trapp called Pickett's family to get details about her background. Sable had grown up in Compton with her grandmother, Michelle Malvo. Just a happy-go-lucky girl. Uh, full of life. She uh, did what she wanted to do. She wrote poems. She liked to write. Pretty black chocolate young girl. Pretty hair. Dimples. Look at that smile. She, she, yeah, she was a happy child. Teeth like her mother's. That's Sable's mother, Dana Lewis. She said Sable was a cheerleader at Compton High School and that she wanted to join the Air Force but failed the math portion of the test. She met a man she called her boyfriend. And to me, they get brainwashed by all the money, pretty purses, get your nails done, go get your hair done, pretty shoes, driving a nice car, <laughs> and then showing her what, uh, what the other girls had. 
Louis Vuitton, Gucci purses. Go shopping in Beverly Hills. You live in Compton, but you shop in Beverly Hills. What young girl wouldn't want that? Sometime in early 2013, after she was baptized at a local church, Sable Pickett stood in her grandmother's Compton kitchen and nonchalantly, even proudly, explained that she had been turning tricks. She said she was an entrepreneur, that it was easy money. And I had to tell her in the kitchen, I said, no, Sable, Oprah is an entrepreneur. You got a long way to go, honey. Her grandmother's home is a shrine to Jesus with a big Bible in the living room and verses from scripture on the walls. I just went off. I told her you wasn't raised like that. I don't know why you're doing that. I just went ballistic. I just started fussing and cussing. She knew she wasn't getting off that easy. For months after Sable left for the streets, Michelle's phone would ring at odd hours, sometimes in the middle of the night. There would be silence on the other end, and she thought it must be Sable maybe trying to work up the courage to say she wanted to come home, maybe just wanting to hear her grandmother's voice. Meanwhile, Sable's mother, Dana, was working at a food for less in Barstow. During shifts, she hoped the phone would ring with news. I wasn't eating. I didn't have no appetite. Smoking cigarettes, going crazy. Just worried. What can you do but worry and wonder where your child is? That's why she got a bad heart. I've been talking to this family for almost three years. Not really giving them much information and instead just asking a lot of questions. To me, she will always call me and check in. Have I heard anything about Sable? And I would tell her, no, I haven't heard anything. I remember at one point Dana asked me, why, why are you... Why are you looking for her? And I remember hanging up the phone and just feeling awful because you you want to tell her, but you don't. Because what about if I'm wrong? You're trying to solve this mystery and there's no good outcome. It's either Sable and then that's terrible because now I know everything about this girl and I'm looking for her and I, I don't want it to be her. But then if it's not her, then I still don't know who Jane Doe is. An awful certainty was growing in Trap. She found a woman who had once been arrested for prostitution with Pickett and met her at a Krispy Kreme near USC. She told Trap that Pickett had worked Beach Boulevard around Anaheim in 2014 and that she carried a burner phone that she inexplicably stopped answering after Valentine's Day. The woman hurried away nervously. She was not supposed to be talking to cops. And... The further along it went, it just got to a point where there was just too many things. And you knew, I just, I knew in my heart it was her, but you just don't want it to be. Trap needed just one trace of Sable Pickett's DNA to clinch it. One sign that she was inside Stephen Gordon's RV. She asked the crime lab to test every one of the 19,078 hairs found in it. No matches. She conferred with prosecutors. To get certainty, they had to strike what she called a deal with the devil. Gordon and Kano got a grant of immunity for information about the fate of Jane Doe number five. It meant they couldn't be prosecuted for her disappearance and death. Trapp will not discuss what the men revealed, and it hasn't been made public. But she said it was enough 
to banish any lingering doubts that Pickett was the victim. And so one day in spring 2017, Trapp drove to the house in Compton. The family knew she was coming and they knew what it was about. As if this case hadn't been horrific enough already. It was, I think, I, I dreaded having to go to this house. She would bring the family clarity, but also dispel any hope of seeing Sable again. She half expected they'd be furious with her for being so tight-lipped with information all this time. It was a pretty house with a fenced-in yard, with rainbow-colored pinwheels and trees full of angel trumpets. She walked inside and found the living room crowded with generations of Sable Pickett's family. Mother, grandmother, grandfather, two aunts. I didn't want to be right, and I was. And now I have to go tell another family that she's one of these girls. The family asked a lot of questions. They were grateful someone had thought to look for Sable. Trapp broke her rule about no crying and homicide. She probably thought we would hold it against her, but nah. That was a blessing, because not knowing. I'd rather know instead of not know. Yes. You'd be wondering all these years. And now we, we know. Trapp had taken the rosary off Sable Pickett's silhouette by her desk and given it to Sable's mother. Back at the office, Trapp replaced the silhouette with Pickett's photo. During the long search for her, she had dodged a supervisor's suggestion that she promote out of homicide by saying the case wasn't done. And my answer was, I'll think about it after I find Jane Doe. After I find Jane Doe is, was, has always been my answer. And then once I found her, it was like, are you ready now? And I'm like, well, maybe just a little while longer. I'm not done yet. I mean, you're a, you're a lifer, right? I think so. I mean, some people work homicide. Other people are homicide detectives. I think I'm a homicide detective. Ready or not now, this game's mine to lose. So follow me. From the Los Angeles Times and Wondery, this is part five of five of Detective Trap. On the next episode, I'll be joined by Matthew Scher, host of Over My Dead Body, to talk about the making of this series. Frank Cano has pleaded not guilty and is awaiting trial. If you're the victim of sexual exploitation or want to help someone who is, call the National Human Trafficking Hotline. The number is one 373 7888. Again, that's 1 373 7888. And thank you. Detective Trap was written and reported by me, your host, Christopher Gofford. Associate producer is Greta Weber. Story editor is Liza Veal. Original music by Fernando Aruda. 
Sound design by Marcelino Villalpando. Our editors at the Los Angeles Times are Steve Clow and Shelby Grad. Special thanks to Asil Kibbe, Julia Turner, and Abby Fentress Swanson. Executive produced by George Lavender, Marshall Louie, and Hernan Lopez for Wondering.